Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 17 of the podcast, the topic is Smart Manufacturing for All. Our guest is John Dick, CEO at SESME, the Smart Manufacturing Institute. In this conversation, we talk about democratizing smart manufacturing, the history and ambition of SESME, bridging the skills gap in small and medium enterprises, which constitute 98% of manufacturing. We discuss how the integration of advanced sensors, data, platforms, and controls radically impact manufacturing performance. We then have the hard discussion of why the U.S. is arguably a laggard. John shares the seven characteristics of future-proofing, and we hear about two coming initiatives, the Smart Manufacturing Executive Council and the Smart Manufacturing Innovation Platform. We then turn to the future outlook over the next decade. Augmented is a podcast for leaders hosted by futurist Tom Arnevenheim, presented by Tulip.co, the manufacturing app platform, and associated with MFG.works, the manufacturing upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast. John, how are you today? I'm well, Trond. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to talking about smart manufacturing. What... um, what brought you to this topic, John? We'll we'll get into you know your background, but I'm just curious. This is a my favorite topic, as you probably know. So I appreciate the chance to pontificate a little. Um, I've been in sort of at this nexus between IT and OT for the last two decades of my career or more, and um, um, found these over these past two decades uh, that this is one of the most complex pieces of manufacturing, period. This sort of unique challenge between the world of operations and the world of IT. And uh, the work I did at Mesa as the Manufacturing Enterprise Solutions Association uh, on the board and as the chairman of the board um, exposed me to a lot of the great vendors in this ecosystem. And through that work, I found that most of them struggle with the same things. We're all struggling in different ways. And so the opportunity to sort of take one step back and look at this from a national and a global perspective and try to find ways to to address these challenges, that became a, a very unique opportunity for me and one that I've enjoyed immensely. And so just that, that the prospect of making a real difference in, in uh, addressing these challenges as a as a nation and as a as an ecosystem has been just a, a privilege and one that I get really excited about. Yeah, so John, you know, you, you mentioned your background. So you worked in both startups. Uh, I think you were raising money for a, a startup called Active Plant, but also you, you, you have worked in large manufacturing for GE and Rockwell. So the, the, the big, big guys, I guess, you know, is in a U.S. context for sure. Um, when uh, this institution, uh, CESMII, SESMI, um, got started, what 
is kind of its main objective and what was the the reason why this institution got launched i guess back in 2016 which is not an enormous uh, amount of time back give us a little sense of who who took this initiative and uh, what is the core mission of this organization right now yeah so so manufacturing usa is the sort of umbrella organization under which um these institutes, SESME being one of them, uh, were, were created. Um, there are a total of 15 of these institutes, uh, all funded with, a, with the exact same business model and funding model, um, and each of them having a different lens on the, the specific manufacturing problem that they're addressing. And ours, as the Smart Manufacturing Institute, um, is directly focused on creating a more competitive manufacturing environment by addressing uh, innovation and research challenges that inhibit manufacturers from doing what they need to do sort of in this uh, fourth industrial revolution. So, so our mandate is to cut the cost of implementing smart manufacturing by 50%. Our, manu- our mandate is to drive uh, energy productivity, energy efficiency. Fundamentally, we're, the agency that funds SESME is the Department of Energy, which, which means that our overarching objective is to drive uh, energy productivity as a as a f- basic metric, but we also believe that whether that's an, a direct challenge, meaning ad- addressing energy performance, energy efficiency directly, or an indirect outcome from a more efficient process or a more effective supply chain or whatever that whatever that manufacturing initiative is that that uh, will create a better product, a better process that will have direct and indirect impact on energy productivity, which is the connection back to our agency and the, the, the source of the funding that we have to accomplish these really important goals. Um, and one of the really big identified gaps also, it seems, is this discrepancy between the big and the small uh, industry players, right? So small and medium enterprises, you know, famously in every country is, is basically uh, that, that's the, the most of, uh, of industry is uh, consisting of these smaller players. They're not necessarily startups. They're not necessarily on this sort of growth track to become uh, unicorns, but they are uh, smaller entities and they have these resource constraints. Give me a sense of what you're doing to, to tackle that, to help them out and to equip them for this new era. And, and maybe you could also just address, you called uh, smart manufacturing industry 4.0, but I've noticed that that's not a term that one uses much. So smart manufacturing is kind of what you've opted for. So maybe just address that and, and then get to the, the small and medium sized. Yeah, um, this is this is uh, I think one of the really important observations that we try to make and the connections that we try to make to say that um, the the status quo, the, the state of the industry today, Trond is is the result of three or four decades of what we did during the third industrial revolution. We began talking about the fourth industrial Re- revolution many years ago, but we can't just turn that light switch on and assume that. Overnight, everything we do now, despite that, the cultures we've created, the technologies we've created, the ways of doing things we've created is now all of a sudden just new and exciting and different. And, and it's going to create that next wave of productivity. So when I talk about smart manufacturing and equating it with the fourth industrial revolution, 
it's it's truly the characteristics and the behaviors that we anticipate more so than what we're seeing because the 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 the, the critical mass of vendors and systems integrators application software products in this marketplace still resemble more of industry 3.0 than they do industry 4.0 and it's part of our vision to characterize those two only in the context of trying to accelerate the movement towards industry 4.0 or, or the fourth industrial revolution because it's it's that that holds out the promise of the value creation that we've been promised for 10 decades but really aren't seeing so that's that's sort of the the way we see sort of the industry 4.0 versus um, the the sort of other concepts that we talk about digital transformations another important term right all of that happens in the context of uh, some initiative in a manufacturing operation to improve. We've been improving for three or four decades. What's different today? Well, it's not just relabeling your <laughs> your your portfolio to be industry 4.0 compliant. So, anyway, that's a that's a, a pet topic of ours, just to help as a as a national uh, conversation, as a set of th- thinking and um, thought leaders, sort of. Uh, organizations and individuals to to put the spotlight on that and ensure that we're doing the things that we can to accelerate the adoption and the behaviors and the characterizations of what it really means to be industry 4.0. Um, so, so to your yeah, I was just curious about uh, yeah, I was just curious about the uh, you know the term indus- uh, the term uh, revolution anyway is sort of interesting in a U.S. context, right? <laughs> But but you know and, and in any society so it's sort of it's it implies a lot of things right but it also certainly implies a uh, a speed that perhaps isn't necessarily uh, happening right so there's all of this talk now about how things are speeding up but as you point out these are even if they have some revolutionary characteristics you know at the edge there are some other things that need to happen that aren't necessarily going to happen at the speed of what you you might imagine when you use the word revolution. It's not going to kind of turn over like a switch. That's exactly right. Well said, Trant. Um, manufacturing and bleeding edge never come together in the same sentence, right? And, and so it takes time for, um, and more so on the OT side than the IT side, right? Out of the IT world, we have we have industrial IoT platforms. We have augmented reality. We have powerful AI machine uh, learning tools. But what is what is the true adoption on the plant floor? Well, um, that's where that's where the, the the behaviors and the cultures and the, and the characteristics of how we've always done things. And the reluctance to adopt new things really comes in. And it's as much a part of the vendor and systems integration ecosystem as it is on the, on the manufacturing side. And that's, that's again, this whole thing becomes to, 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 to drive. I really don't think it's a revolution, to your point, to drive an evolution or accelerate the evolution towards um, Industry 4.0 requires the ecosystem to get engaged and to recognize these really important things that have to change. That makes sense. Yes, a, a lot of them have to change, and and then you know to these small and medium enterprises. So I've seen a statistic that even in the U.S. it's around ninety eight percent of manufacturing. How that is an enormous challenge, even for an association like like yours. How do you reach that many? 
Yeah, and, and uh, here's an interesting epiphany I had uh, shortly after I uh, came to SESME and, and um, was working through exactly this challenge. How, how does an organization like ours access and understand the challenges they face and, and, and then look at the ecosystem that's there and available to serve them? The epiphany I had was that in my entire career, with, with both big global corporations like Rockwell Automation and General Electric and, and specifically even the startup organization that I helped raise VC for and measure capital funding for and, and uh, build and, and ultimately see acquired, um, I had never been in a small medium manufacturing plant environment. The, the entire ecosystem is focused on large brands, recognized brands and and enterprises that have the potential for multi-site rollouts multi-site implementation and and so the the business models the marketing models the sales the go-to-market the cost of sales everything in this ecosystem is designed towards the large enterprises called the fortune 1000 that represent the, the types of characteristics that any startup any any global fortune 500 organization is going to go pursue, which, which says, which then says, or leaves us with a really important conversation to say, how can these small medium manufacturing organizations become part of this dialogue? How can we engage them? What, what, what does an ecosystem look like? That's, that's there to serve these organizations and, and where an implementation organization like a good systems integrator can actually make money engaging in this way. And so that, that's where the, the, the needs of that ecosystem and, and our specific capabilities come together. The notion that democratization, which is going to help the big manufacturers and the big vendors and the big integrators and the big machine builders, the same things that we can do to cut, cut the cost of deploying smart manufacturing for them will enormously increase the accessibility of smart manufacturing capabilities for the small and medium manufacturers. And so that's, that's where. John, let's, let's talk specifics. Uh, let's talk specifics. So uh, smart manufacturing, you said, right. Um, and I'm assuming it's not just a community effort. You're, you're intervening at the level also of providing a certain set of tools also. So if we talk about sensors and data and platforms and sort of control systems, these are all impacting manufacturing performance. Uh, to what extent can an association like yours actually get involved at that level? Is it you know purely on the standardization front, sort of recommending different approaches? Or is it even uh, going deeper into layers of technology and, and providing more than just sort of uh, recommendations. Yeah, so so the, the 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 short answer is it depends on the domain in the area of um, networking and sensors and controls. Um, those are those are areas where um, longer term research um, and investment to drive innovation to reduce the cost of connecting things uh, becomes really important. Um, and, and that's that's one of the threads or one of the investment paths that we pursue through what we call uh, roadmap projects, where where there are longer, uh, larger in terms of financial scope and um, uh, further out sort of impacts that we're we're hoping will 
have a dramatic impact on the cost of connecting machines and, and sensors and, and variable frequency drives and motion systems or, or uh, whatever sort of data source you have on in an operation. Um, so that's that's one track. The other piece, which is uh, gets to the, the actual creation of technologies, um, is more on the data contextualization, data collection, data ingestion side. Um, and you mentioned the word standards. While standards are important and where there are standards that we can embrace and advocate for, we're absolutely doing that. Part of part of the OPC Foundation and and uh, the standards that they're driving, MQTT and Sparkplug becomes a really important uh, area as well. And the work that MT Connect is doing to to do to solve many of the same challenges that we believe we need to solve more broadly uh, for a subset of machine classes, more in the sort of CNC machine tool side. Um, but but this this effort, smart manufacturing is happening today and it's and it's accelerating today and we can't wait for standards to be agreed on created and then achieve critical mass so we we're investing in a in a thin but vital layer of technologies that we can drill into if you'd like as a not-for-profit not to compete in the marketplace but to create a de facto standard for how some of these really important challenges can be addressed and how as a standard uh, develops and and we we deploy we fund the deployment of these innovations in the marketplace in kind of a um, an innovation uh, environment versus a production environment. Not that they don't turn into production environments, but they start as an innovation project to to, to start and prove out and either fail quickly or 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 scale up into a production environment. Right. So so these these. This idea of a de facto standard is a really important idea for us. That's that's our objective, and that's what we believe we can build and are building as critical mass adoption for really important ideas. And we're getting support from a lot of the great um, thought leaders in this space, but also from a lot of the great organizations and bodies like the, like as I mentioned, the OPC Foundation, the uh, Industrial Internet Consortium, um, the the German Platform Industry 4.0 group uh, uh, responsible in Germany for Industry 4.0. We're working towards and aligning around these same principles and ideas, again, to help create a harmonized view of these foundational technologies that that will allow us to accomplish the dramatic reduction of the cost of connecting and extracting information from and contextualizing that information and then making it available in ways that... um, are far more consistent and compelling for the application vendor. The, 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 the bar or the threshold at which an application developer can actually step into the space and do something is, is in a pretty high space, right? If you kind of look back, and I know this is, analogy is probably a little overused, but what it took to build uh, applications for um Devices and phones, smart devices and smartphones before Apple and Android became uh, commonplace um, meant that you had to build the entire stack every single time. And that's where the industry is today. When you sit down in front of a product, you, you're, you're starting from scratch every time, regardless of the fact that you've created an information model for that paper converting machine 100 times in 20 different technology stacks. When I start this project, it's a blank slate. It's a blank sheet of paper. Every single time, is that value add? Is that gonna is that gonna help? No. 
And yet it requires a tremendous amount of domain expertise to, to build that. So the notion of standardizing these things, abstracting them from any individual technology stack, standardizing on them, uh, making them available in a marketplace for others to use, um, that's, that's where democratization begins to happen. So what you are about to create is a innovation platform for smart manufacturing. Will that be available then uh, to everybody in the U.S. marketplace, or is it actually completely open for all of the industry wherever they reside? And instead of what, what are the practical steps that you would have to take as a manufacturer if you even just wanted to look into some of the things you're building and, and maybe plug in with it? So we have, uh, we're not about to build, just a, a minor minor detail there. We've been working on this for, for uh, a couple of years, and we have um, a growing set of these implementations in the marketplace through the funded projects that we were proud to be able to uh, bring to the marketplace. Um, so the funding, and, and right now within the scope of what we're doing here as an institute, the funds that we deploy as projects, these, these grants, um, essentially mean that we do these, we spend these grants, we spend these funds in the U.S. only. So, so, so in the context of what we do here, these, the smart manufacturing innovation platform, the creation of these profiles, the creation of the apps on top of the platform by our e e vendor ecosystem and sort of domain experts in this ecosystem, um, those, are, those are largely here and, and exclusively here in the U.S., I should say. So, so from that perspective, Deployments that we have control over in terms of funding are uniquely here in the U.S. Uh, what happens? What happens beyond um, that in terms of where they're deployed and how they're deployed? We know we live in a global manufacturing um, environment, and and as our members want to deploy these capabilities outside of the U.S., those are all those are all um, uh, absolutely acceptable deployments of, of these technologies. There's but John, so all of these deployments are they funded projects? So they they're always with with an involvement of uh, grant money, or or will or, or is some part of this platform actually literally plug and play? So there's there's several threads. The projects that we fund um, are obviously one thread. There's another thread that says any member of ours can use any implementation of our platform can use our platform and any of the vendors that are here as a proof of concept or pilot, typically lasting three, four, five, six months for free of charge. Um, what happened, then that leads to the third component is after your pilot, there's, there's, there's one of two things that's going to happen. The system will be decommissioned and you ideally, um, well, I shouldn't say ideally, you, you failed fast, the system's decommissioned and folks move on. Ideally, this, the pilot was a success and that generates a financial transaction for the parties involved in that. And that organization moves towards a, a production rollout of, of these capabilities. So SESME's role then, then diminishes and, and steps away. But, but this notion of a pilot uh, came, actually came from a conversation with one of our great members here, Procter & Gamble. Um, they, they, they talk about innovation triage and the, the complexity of just innovating within a large corporate environment like Procter & Gamble. The fact that um, to, to stand up the infrastructure, to invite a vendor into uh, several vendors into uh, stand up their systems costs hundreds of thousands of dollars and takes 
months and months and months just to just just to get started. This notion that we can provision this platform in minutes, bring our vendor uh, partner technologies to bear in minutes um, allows them to ex- execute what they call innovation triage, right? Um, and, and it really accelerates the, the the rate at which they can they can innovate within their corporation. But it's that same idea that we translate back down to small media manufacturing, right? The notion that you don't have to have a server, you don't have to sustain a server, you don't have to you don't have to buy a server to to try smart manufacturing in a small media manufacturing environment. If you've got five sensors from Amazon.com and a, and a lightly industrialized Raspberry Pi, you have you have the means to begin the smart manufacturing journey. What do you do with that data? Well, um, there's great partner organizations like Tulip, like Microsoft Excel, even Microsoft Power BI that represent compelling, democratized, contemporary, low-cost solutions that they can actually sustain. Because this, is, this isn't just about the cost of acquiring and, implement, and Im- implementing these systems, as you know. This is also about sustaining them. Do I have the staff, the domain expertise as a small media manufacturer to sustain the stuff that somebody else may have given me or, or implemented here for me? And so that's just as, in, just as a, important a requirement for these organizations as, as the original sort of acquisition and imp- implementation challenges. It's so important what you're talking about here, John, because there's there's even uh, there's an additional concept which is not so pleasant uh, called pilot purgatory, right? And oh. this has been identified in factories worldwide. It's identified in any software development, but with OT, as you pointed out, with more operational technologies with additional complications, it is uh, so easy to just get started with something and then get stuck and then sort of decide or maybe not decide, just sort of it just happens that it never scales up to production value and production operations. Uh, and it seems like some of the approaches you're putting on the table here really help that situation. Because as you mentioned, hundreds of thousands of dollars, that's not a great uh, investment for for a smaller company if it leads to an ever-ending, you know, a never-ending kind of stop and start experimentation, but never really can be implemented on the true production line. Yeah. Spot on, Tron. The, the, um, the, the numbers that we're seeing now, uh, I think McKinsey released a report a couple of months ago talking about, I think somewhere between 70 and 80% of all projects in this domain um, not succeeding, which means they either failed or, or only moderately succeeded and, and that's, that's, I think that's where the term pilot purgatory comes in. I talk almost every chance I get about the notion that, you know, the, the, the first couple of decades of the third industrial revolution were sort of building, resulted in islands of automation. Then we began building islands of information as, as software became a little more commonplace in the, in the late 80s and 90s. And in the aughts here, the last decade, we've been building islands of innovation, right? These, this pilot purgatory. The assumption was, and I, and I get back to the, that the, the journey between where, where we thought Industry 3.0 or the third industrial revolution became the fourth industrial revolution, the, the, the idea was that, man, we're just going to implement some of these great new capabilities and prove them out and scale them up. Well, it gets back to the fact that even these pilots, these great innovative tools were implemented 
with these old ideas and in these closed, siloed, uh, data siloed sort of ways and, and characterizations. And and so, yeah, everybody's excited. The CEO has visibility to this this new digital transformation pilot that, that he just authorized or she just authorized. And a lot of smart people are involved. There are a lot of domain experts involved. The vendors throw cash at this thing and the the, the systems integrators, implementers throw cash at this thing. And, and even if they're successful and broadly as an individual proof of concept, there are points of light that say we, we accomplished some really important things. The success is not there. The success is in seeing that scaled out. And, and those are the pieces that really nuanced um, uh, pieces that we're trying to address through this notion of the innovation platform and profiles, the notion that interoperability and openness is what's going to drive scale, right? The notion that you don't have the same stovepiped legacy application getting at the same set of data from the same data sources on the shop floor for every unique application, and that there are much more contemporary ways of of building standardized data structures that every application can build on and drive interoperability through. Yeah, you talk about this as the characteristics of future proofing. So you mentioned interoperability and and I guess openness, uh, which is a far wider concept. Like openness can mean several things, uh, and then sustainability and security were some other uh, of your future proofing characteristics. Can you uh, line up some of those for uh, for us to to just give some uh, uh, some context to to what can be done if you are a you know, a factory owner, if you are a small, medium-sized uh, enterprise and you want to take this advice right now and, and implement. Yeah, we've, we've tried, uh, as an association, as a consortia, uh, Trond, um, it's not just SESME staff like myself uh, who are paid full-time to be here that, that um, are focused on identifying and d- developing strategies for the, the challenges that we believe will help uh, manufacturing here in the U.S., it's organizations um, that, that are our members here uh, and thought leaders from across the industry um, that help us identify these really fundamental challenges and opportunities. And so as, a, as an institute, we've landed on what we call the smart manufacturing first principles. There's seven first principles that we believe characterize the modern, contemporary, Industry 4.0 compliant, if you will, um, strategy. Um, and, and just to list them off quickly, because we have definitions and we have uh, content that sort of fleshes out these ideas, it, sort of in order of, of solve and order of importance for us, um, interoperability and openness is the first one. Sustainable and energy efficient is the second one. Security, scalability, uh, resilient and orchestrated flat in real time, and proactive and sem- semi-autonomous. And so these, these, we believe, are the characteristics of solutions, technologies, capabilities that will move us from this world of pilot purgatory and, and, and where we've come from as an ecosystem in this third industri- industrial revolution and prepare us for uh, a, a, a future-proof strategy, whether I'm a small, medium manufacturer that this cares about this one instance of, of this problem I need to solve or whether I'm a Fortune 10 manufacturing organization that understands that 
the mess that we've created over the last 25 years has got to make way for a better future that I'm not going to reinvest in a future. Not that I can rip and replace anything I've got, but I've got to invest in capabilities moving forward that represent a better, more sustainable, more interoperable future for my organization. That's the only way we're going to create this next wave of productivity that that is held out for us as a promise of these new this new era. John, you have alluded to this, and uh, you, you call it the mess that we've created over the last 25 years. We have talked about the problems of lack of interoperability and other issues. This is not an easy discussion, and certainly not you know, in your official capacity, but why is the U.S. a laggard? Because, to be honest, this is not problems that every country has. To a degree, they are, but specifically the U.S., and its manufacturing sector has been lagging. And there are data there, and I think you you agree with this. Why is this happening? And is any of these initiatives going to be able to address that short term? So, So this is probably the most important question that we as a nation need to address. And it's a multifaceted, complex question. And I think the answer is, is, uh, is a multifaceted, complex response as well. <clears throat> and, and we probably don't have time to, deal, to drill into this in detail, but um, I'll respond at, a, at, a, at least at a 30,000-foot level. Um, even this morning, I saw um, uh, a friend of mine sent me a link about China uh, being called out today officially as being the leader in this, in this uh, digital transformation um, initiative globally, as you've just alluded to. So... From our perspective, um, there are a couple of important, and, and like I said, r- really understanding why this is the case is, is, is the only way we're going to be able to move forward and, and accelerate the adoption of, of, these, of this initiative. Um, but there are a number of reasons. Uh, the, the reason I think China is ahead um, is, is in part cultural, but it's also in part the fact that they don't have much of the legacy that we've built most of their manufacturing operations as they've scaled up over the last decade, two decades really since the World Trade Organization sort of accepted uh, China's entry in this in this domain. Um, they their growth into sort of manufacturing systems has been much much more recent than ours, and so they don't have this complex legacy that we do. There are other cultural implications for how China the the, the sort of Chinese manufacturing environment. Um, adopts technologies and it's it's there's much more of a top-down culture there um, so so that if certain leaders drive these activities and invest in these ways much of the ecosystem sort of follows so that's that's um that's I'll say one perspective on on how China becomes the leader in this domain very quickly um, Europe is also ahead of the US um, and I I think there are some important reasons why that's the case as well. And, and a part of it is that they have a very strong cultural connection to the way government funds and is integrated with both the learning um, and academic uh, ecosystem there in, in most of Europe, um, as well as with the manufacturing companies themselves. They, they are, it's, it seems to be, it seems to have become part of their DNA to accept that the, the federal government 
um, can bring these initiatives to the marketplace and then funds the education of every part of their ecosystem to drive these capabilities into their manufacturing marketplace. We, on the other hand, are a much more American society, right? We are individualistic. The notion that the government should tell manufacturers what to do is a, is a, is not a well-accepted, well-adopted idea here in, in the U.S., right? And so, so I think, and that's been a strength for, for many manufacturers and for many, many years. The, the best analogy that I can come up with right now in terms of where we are and where we need to go and SESME's role in, in all of this and the federal government's role in all of this, which I think brings a healthy blend of who we are as a, as a nation and, and how we work and how we do things here together with a future that's a little more, um, I'll say, compatible with these notions of, of adopting and driving technology forward at scale is, is uh, the, the reality that in 1956, President Eisenhower convinced Congress to fund the U.S. Interstate Highways and Defense Act to build a network of interstate highways, a highway network across this country to facilitate much more efficient flow of people and goods across this country. Um, apparently, as a, as a soldier, um, many decades before, he had to travel from San Diego to Virginia um, uh, in a military convoy. It took him 31 days to cross the country, which, as a, as a slight aside, was a, a, apparently the, the, the catalyst or drove the passion he had to solve this problem. And, 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 and that's, that's the role that I think we can play today, creating a digital highway, if you will, a digital um, catalyst to bring our supply chains together in a much more contemporary and real-time way and to bring our information systems into a modern uh, industry foral compliant environment. And that's, that's setting those, making, creating those definitions defining those characteristics and then providing the means whereby we can accelerate this ecosystem to, to move forward. I think that's the right balance between our, our sense of individualism and, and how we do things here in the U S versus um, adopting these capabilities at scale. That's uh, such a thoughtful answer to my question, which I was a little afraid of asking because it is a painful question and it goes to the heart, I guess, of what it means to be an American, right? To be industrial and to and to make changes. And there is something here that is very admirable, but I also do feel that the psychology of this nation also really doesn't deeply recognize that many of the greatest accomplishments that have been happening on U.S. soil they have had an infrastructure component and a heavy investment from the government when you think about the creation of the internet, the creation of the highway system. You can go even further back, right, the railways. All of those things, they had components, at least of regulation, or yeah. they had massive infrastructure elements to them, whether they were fi privately financed or publicly financed, which is sort of, that's sort of not the point, but the, the point is there were massive investments that couldn't really be justified in a, you know, annual budget, 
right? You, right. you would have to think yeah. much, much wider. So in, in, in sort of in closing on, on, on that end then, John, if you look to the future and, and we have said, you know, manufacturing is of course a global industry also, what are you seeing over this next decade is going to happen to smart manufacturing? So on, on U.S. soil, uh, presumably, uh, some amount of infrastructure investment will be made, and part of it will be digital. Part of it be, will be actually equipment, right, or or a hybrid thereof um, that is some, somewhat smartly connected together. But where is that going to lead us? You know, is manufacturing now going to pull us into the future, or will it remain an industry that historically pulled it into uh, pull us into the future? But will take a backseat to other industries as you know as uh, as we move into the next decade. Yeah, that's another big question. Um, we've been talking about smart manufacturing twenty thirty. The idea that smart manufacturing is manufacturing by twenty thirty, and it, a decade seems like a long time. And for most. For most functions, for most uh, areas of innovation, it is. But manufacturing does kind of run at its own pace, right? And there is a there is a, a timeline around which both standardization and technologies and cultures move on the plant floor, and so that's that's a certain reality. And we were we were on a trajectory to to, to get there, but ironically, um, it's it it took a pandemic to truly underscore the value of digital transformation, digital operations, and digital workers um, here, I can certainly say in the US, uh, but but even more broadly, right? So the, a couple of important data points to back that up. <clears throat> um, Gartner just recently lo- uh, announced the out- outcome of, a, of an important survey of, of, I think, close to 500 manufacturing executives here in the US in terms of their strategic perception of digital transformation, smart manufacturing. And I think they specifically call it smart manufacturing. And it was as close to unanimous as anything they've ever seen. 86 or 87% of manufacturing executives said that now digital transformation, smart manufacturing is the most strategic thing they can invest in. What was it a year ago? It was probably less than half of that. Um, so, so I, that speaks to the experience these organizations have gone through and the reality that as we talk about resilience, some people talk about reshoring and some of that will happen. As we talk about uh, a future environment that's, oh, I shouldn't say disruption proof, but much more capable of dealing with disruption, not just within the four walls of the plant or an enterprise, but in the supply chain, um, these capabilities are the things that will separate those that can withstand these types of disruptions from those that can't. And that has been recognized. And so as much as, as, much as these executives are the same ones that, that, that are frustrated by pilot purgatory, it's these executives that are saying, that's the, that's the future. We've got to go there. And, and we're seeing through, through this pandemic, we here at SESME are seeing uh, the manufacturing thought leaders um, understand this and are rallying around these ideas more now than ever before to ensure that what we do in the future is consistent with a more thoughtful, 
more um, contemporary, future-proof way of investing in digital transformation or smart manufacturing. John, these are these are fascinating times, and you have a very important role. I thank you so much for taking time to appear on my sh uh, show here today. Tron, I appreciate that. I appreciate the uh, privilege of sharing these thoughts with you. Um, th these are profound questions, and um, answering the, the easy ones is fun. Answering the hard questions um, is important, and I appreciate the chance to have this conversation with you today. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. You have just listened to episode 17 of the Augmented Podcast with hosts Romana and Han. The topic was Smart Manufacturing for All. Our guest was John Dick, CEO at SESME, the Smart Manufacturing Institute. In this conversation, we talked about democratizing smart manufacturing and the history and ambition of SESME, bridging the skills gap in small and medium enterprises, which constitute 98% of manufacturing. We discuss how the integration of advanced sensors, data, platforms, and controls radically impact manufacturing performance. And we then have the hard discussion of why the U.S. arguably is a lagger. We heard about two coming initiatives, the Smart Manufacturing Executive Council and the Smart Manufacturing Innovation Platform. We then turn to the future outlook over the next decade. My takeaway is that U.S. manufacturing is a bit of a conundrum. How can it both be the driver of the international economy and a laggard in terms of productivity and innovation all at the same time? Can it all be explained by scale, both scale in multinationals and scale in SMEs? Whatever the case may be, future-proofing manufacturing, which SESME is up to, seems like a great idea. The influx of smart manufacturing technologies will, over time, transform industry as a whole but it will not happen automatically. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode eight on work of the future, episode five on plug and play industrial tech or episode nine on the fourth industrial revolution post COVID-19. Augmented. The Industry 4.0 Podcast.